Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and today's episode is a return to the industry and business-oriented roots of this show. We're talking with Scott McCubre, who has influenced many of the most pivotal moments in our sport's recent history. For example, bringing the concept of team marketing to trail, starting Seattle Running Company and turning that area into the American cultural capital of the sport for many years, and helping grow notable and upstart brands like Montreal, Scott, and now Vamazi. This conversation is wide-ranging. Scott shares fascinating stories from his days hanging out with the likes of Chrissy Mayo, Hal Kerner, and Scott Jurek. He talks about the genesis of sponsored athletes on the trail scene, growing the competitive racing scene through experiments with the White River 50, and the relationship between the growth of trail running over the last two decades within the greater outdoor industry. I personally learned a lot from this conversation, and if you're interested in the history of the last say, two to three decades of the American trail running scene, as well as the ins and outs of the the behind-the-scenes work that makes events like Western States, UTMB, and Hard Rock possible, you will enjoy this one. But before we get started, thanks to Rabbit for sponsoring this episode. Fall is on the horizon, and that means comfortable but cooler weather. It's the time of year that I turn to my favorite sweatpants. They're called the Jogrounds, and they're made by Rabbit. If you're curious and you want to get a pair, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. With that, let's get to the conversation. All right, Scott McCubrey, it's a pleasure to have you on the Single Track Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Finn. Appreciate it. I was telling a lot of folks before this conversation, these sort of like behind the scenes industry type conversations are my favorite to have on the show. We do a lot of like athlete interviews, state of the sport type stuff, but um, I know you have a a storied sales and marketing background. That's sort of my passion as well when I'm not podcasting. So uh, I think we have a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about. Um, where I want to start this conversation is in the, I'll call it the event space of trail running. We can kind of get into it more at length later in the conversation, but for quite a while, you were the race director for the White River 50. You did a lot of innovative things there. You brought the race to, I would say, a level of national competitive prominence for a while. And what I've been thinking a lot about lately is how much turbulence or, or volatility there is in this area of the sport. It's hard for races to to stay competitively relevant for, you know, a certain number of years. You know, what used to be golden ticket races, for example, are no longer. What used to be marquee races for other reasons, you know, maybe they don't even exist anymore. Generally there's just so much change going on. There's such like a fragile balance at any given time. Based on your experience as an RD, what's your like thesis on why it's so hard for any race to maintain that competitive status in our sport? Well, um, you know, for one, um, there's a whole lot more races out there now than when I started working with White River 50, you know, back in 99. And um, uh, when White River 50 came into being, which was 1993, and Chris Ralph was the, the race director before I started there. And um, mainly I was an athlete at the time, which, you know, I was starting to get old already before, uh, before, uh, um, before I started to get into doing a lot more business and less competing <laughs> um, in the trail running space. But um, with White River 50, um, at the time, it was a very regional sport for us. Okay. And so working with Montreal at the time also um, allowed me to get out to these different regions and meet the race directors and the key 
players in Northern California and in in the Southeast, in the Northeast, in Colorado. Um, yeah. And at the time, I was just starting to take over White River 50. And we were just starting to discuss the concept of national championship events within our sport and what that would mean and look like. And so through my marketing work with Montreal, you know, I had gotten to need, gotten to know the race directors and um, kind of the regional players around our sales territory. Um, and so with White River, it was a very pristine environment and course. Um, yeah. In the local runners, there was about 64 people that were participating in 95, the first year that I went and ran. White River 50. And I'd grown up there in the White River Valley around Crystal Mountain and Mount Rainier. So I'd been up there since I was two years old. Had a cabin up there that could house 30 people um, and knew the owner of the local hotel and the um, um, local restaurant up there. And so I had this base of connection and this um, network right around the White River course that allowed me to take the concept of the national championships and really take it to action right away. You know, I could um, get on the phone and invite 24 yeah. athletes and give them a free place to stay. Um, I was working, you know, doing the marketing for Montreal at the time, and we had partnered with Jeannie Wall when they were first coming out. Patagonia was first coming out with their endurance line. And also with Dana Miller, who was working marketing and ultimate direction. And so I was able to partner up with those guys and along with some other work, come up with $10,000 in prize money in the year 2000. Um, and also at that time, um, Bill Rowe was the president of USA Track and Field. And so we had this support from the president of USA Track and Field to really integrate, you know, and get the ball rolling as far as integrating ultra running and trail running into the USN, USA track and field umbrella. And so I kind of had all these pieces in place that allowed me to then um, take that event and turn it into a more national event, um, as well as the connections to bring these other regional runners to come and all show up and stay in my cabin and, and race against each other. Um, and so that was kind of the platform to kind of take White River from this regional 64 person event. And immediately, um, the year after I took it over, um, get the permit in place and have the infrastructure to then bring that event up to 225 runners in no time at all and had the support of the Forest Service um, in the local commerce around Crystal Mountain and whatnot, um, and had the cabin to invite runners. And, you know, the first year we put it on, we had um, Scott Jurek and Ann Trayson and Tim Tweetmeyer, and we had Courtney yeah. Campbell, and we had, you know, people from Colorado where we had Dave Mackey and, um, and from the Northeast. And I invited, and me and Ian Torrance basically just got on the phone and started calling people and saying, hey, we want to invite you out to the race. You get out here, we'll put you up. We've got prize money. We're going to compete against each other. And um, people showed up at the cabin and Ann Trayson's like, hey, is that David Horton over there? Doesn't he own the Appalachian Trail record? Can you introduce me? You know, and then Courtney Campbell's like, is that Ann Trayson over there? You gotta introduce me to Ann Trayson. And um, so that was the dynamic that first year. It was really taking this 
regional kind of fragmented sport and, and kind of brought it all together because we had the infrastructure um, and this pristine, beautiful course that backed it up, which allowed us to continue that going forward. And um, because I was working in the industry, first at Montreal and then owning Seattle Running Company, um, I was able to find sponsors to continue um, coming up with um, generally for 10 years, $10,000 in prize money, along with housing 24 athletes and paying for the previous year's national champions to come out. And so that was uh, the platform we were working with in uh, 2000 when we first, you know, kind of introduced the event as a national event. Um, did that answer the couple, question? <laughs> well, I, I have a couple follow-ups off that. The yeah. first is, you know, you mentioned the $10,000 prize purse. This is in the year 2000. And one of the things that fascinates me is that's still a pretty significant number. Fast forwarding 23 years, there are very few races, at least on the American scene, where you're matching that. Like, you know, Fred and team at Run Rabbit Run do a great job of, I think, the winner this year got like 17 grand, but it, it goes all the way down to seventh place. There's a lot of money at stake. But that $10,000 bar is still significant in, in, 2023. And it's, it's fascinating to me that, you know, we're not seeing more widespread prize purses and that number really hasn't been surpassed by, by races that do offer it. Do you have any ideas why it hasn't really changed or it hasn't like kept pace, pace with inflation? Yeah. I mean, it took a lot of work for one. Um, and if I were to throw out $10,000 in prize money a year in advance, I had to come up with that money. Right. And, yeah. um, luckily the first, um, the first few years, um, Jeannie Wall and I had established um, the year before White River was national uh, trail running champs. It was the only one in the country really at the time. The year before that, Kevin Setnis and his group was putting it on at the Ice Age Trail. So that was really the first year because Kevin was heavily involved in USA track and field and that drew me into it. And with Montreal Patagonia, we went straight to support you know, the first national championship came up with a, with a budget with Montreal and Patagonia to provide $5,000 in prize money. Um, and the first year we did it was at the ice age race. And then the next year we did it was when I took over white river 50 and I knew that I had that $5,000 there, um, between Patagonia and Montreal to at least get us halfway. Um, and then I had to work hard to come up with the rest of it. And, um, it was always a revolving target. Okay. Um, but since we had the store, I had all these employees working for me, which were all the old Montreal runners, Hal Kerner, Scott Jurek, William Emerson, Phil Kocek, Chrissy Mail. They all worked at the store at the same time here. And they were living in my, sleeping in my basement, working at the store, training together. So I had this base of support with those guys and they were my employees. And so I had this amazing pool to work with. Um, as well as these brands that were interested in getting into um, the trail running world. And I was one of their top accounts with Seattle Running Company. And so they were, they were an open audience to these ideas. And so I met the marketing guy from the West Coast for Mercedes in the store, and he was a runner. And he gave us 
you know, $3,000. And um, yeah. we knew the guy down at Washington Mutual, you know, the bank there, and he was a runner and he gave us, you know, $1,000. And, um, and so through the network of the store and the people I'd met from Montreal, um, I was able to come up, you know, we had a running club. We, we started Seattle Running Club in conjunction with the events. So we had this nonprofit, which then we built the competitive Northwest scene because the money we made with our events, we used it to send people to national our world 100K champs that were in the club. Um, we had full range of cross country teams we sent to national championships for club cross country and the events fueled all of that. Um, and so it just kind of all worked together really well. And it wasn't that hard for me to come up with those dollars just because we did have this network because of the store and with Montreal and the athletes I had in place that made it less ominous, <laughs> so to speak. And when Montreal Patagonia stepped aside, La Sportiva jumped right in, you know, and they became, yeah. they took over that $5,000 spot. And then I just had to find the other $5,000. Um, so it's, I don't think that's changed. I don't think it's any easier to get sponsorship dollars um, at an event. And I was, it was not nearly as competitive either. There was just a handful of ultras at the time. Um, and it was, so you were like a first mover kind of in sort of that like professionalization of the competitive sphere. Um, most definitely. And that really started with the Montreal piece of it because we created this team and I would go out and run a race like the mountain masochist and I'd meet Eric Clifton there because he beat me. I'd try to invite him to be on the Montreal team. Right. And when I first met Luann Park, I had gone out to the way too cool hundred or way too cool 50 K helped Greg Soderland boil potatoes and gave him prizes to give away. And then I'm running with Luann Park who's up there with the front guys. Cause I was not a slouch at the time. And I'm, I told her as we were running, I'm like, if you beat me in this race, I'll give you a sponsorship with Montreal, you know? And so she became one of my Montreal athletes. Um, and then a lot of those Montreal runners moved into the Seattle running company, um, um, came and lived there and trained together which then had attracted other runners like Uli Steidel wanted to come do long runs with Scott Jurek and Hal and Brandon Sobrowski yeah. met Chrissy Mayle, who was her manager and Brandon moved to, to Seattle to work at the store. And pretty soon, you know, he had this training group in this network. Um, and then they all had goals, you know, you know, we're not getting any attention. We want to go to world hundred K's. And so then I talked to Bill Rowe and, go to the uh, national convention for USA track and field and established and met Nancy Hobbs there. And we created the Mutt council within USA track and field. And then Nikki Kimball and Howard Nippert and I, who were competitive runners and on the Mutt council started drawing up selection processes for the world hundred K because we knew the other athletes. And, um, and then we started putting together selection standards for national championship events. Um, and so that along with my connection with the athletes and outreach to the store with the club, um, and then the events we were putting on, um, it threw me into the middle of this arena of developing the competitive side of the sport. Gosh, this, this, this might end up being like a two or three hour conversation because <laughs> I have so many follow-ups and I, I actually do want to go back to, 
to a follow-up on the original question I asked, but because you mentioned something there about like, you know, there were certain moments in your professional life where like people like Scott Jurek and maybe Chrissy Mail were like living in your basement, working at the store. They would say, hey, I want to further my career in this avenue or this avenue. And you would sort of like help them, shepherd them to that spot. I'm curious, like what inspired you to, to, to be moved to go to bat for these athletes to the extent that you did helping them with their careers? Because I think maybe one of the raps that pro athletes get in our sport is maybe there's a, they're a bit passive in sort of their career prospects and they move slowly and maybe self-promotion doesn't come as easily. And here you are, um, like they, they'll, they'll sort of like speak something into the universe and, and there you are to provide like sort of like the perfect solution. And, you know, with Montreal, you know, it wasn't just athlete driven. It, it was really sales driven. And when I, when I came in in Montreal, which was one sport at the time, hired me to take on this role. Um, they were about oh, $3.2 million a year company. So they're really small. Okay. And they don't have a huge marketing budget. They had really good reps in place that were mainly outdoor sales reps. They were climbing and um, more hiking boot oriented and had this trail running shoe. And so um, basically, I when I first started this Northwest team, I knew um, the White River 50 because I grew up at Crystal Mountain. And then a friend of my dad's was Chris Ralph, who was the one putting it on. And so I called up Chris. I said, hey, how about if I bring a couple friends and I give you some stuff to give away. And um, next thing I know, I'm standing up in front of the, the crowd at the finish line and helping give out awards. And, um, and then I'm meeting other athletes. And so I took that out to the other regions where the reps were. And um, at the time it was all the information was in ultra running magazine. That's the only place you know, I'd be reading about Brandon Sabrowski and Ian Torrance and um, where they lived and then David Horton. And then, you know, I learned about the Vermont 100 and I called up the race director and I said, Hey, I've got a rep in the Northeast and I want to come out and support your race and I'll bring some shoes to give away. I'll run the race. Um, you know, we'll do a raffle for your nonprofit. And by the way, I, I, I think I heard that Ian Torrance was going to be at your races. He signed up and yeah, he was. And so I go out to Vermont and I'd already gotten this idea that Ian was a great athlete at the time. He was the winningest ultra, ultra runner in the sport at the time. Um, and he was in every result I'd see in ultra running magazine. Um, and so one of my goals along with getting to know the Vermont 100 and the people putting it on and then getting the name out there of Montreal was to meet Ian Torrance and see, you know, along with being a good athlete, what kind of person is Ian? And after the pre-race expo where I was promoting the brand and talking to people, um, I went out to the parking area, this big grass field, and um, I'd seen Ian from afar um, but I'm walking past a car and here's Ian asleep with his head against the window of his car. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is an opportunity. So I knock on the window and wake up Ian and I introduce him, myself to him. And I'm like, can I 
buys can I buy you some dinner? And by the way, I have this hotel room by myself. If you're sleeping in your car, come sleep in a bed the night before the race. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're becoming great friends. And I ran about 70 miles of the race with him. He went on to get second place. I went on to blow up and get about 15th place. Um, but after that, I'm like, you know, this is a guy who is a, an amazing personality. He's driven, he's smart. And so was Scott Jurek. And so were all these other people. And so the ultra running community by and large um, is a definitely a lifestyle community. You know, they're, they're into what they're doing. Um, Soul sport. Exactly. And a lot of people are driven to be doctors and Scott Jurek at the time was going to um, physical therapy school and he was doing his residency in the Seattle area and he showed up to the Cleelum Ridge run and the locals of us there thought, which one of us are going to win today? And then this guy just takes off off the starting line and leaves us all in the dust. We're all like, oh, he's going to come back to us. We'll catch him. That, he's a young whippersnapper kind of thing, right? Well, he goes on to set the course record and win the race. And then I start talking to him and getting to know him. And um, I'm like, this is the type of person that we want to have representing Montreal. This is a guy who's going into physical therapy, who loves the sport who's super enthusiastic, great personality. Um, and so this is someone I want to sign on as an athlete for Montreal. And that was kind of the thing. One, they had to beat me in the race. And second, they had to be, you know, well-respected in the local community. Um, and pretty soon we all became such good friends that when I opened Seattle Running Company, Scott was looking for a place to go. And this, the store actually allowed him a place to network within the physical therapy world. Um, and it helped launch his work within physical therapy and coaching as well as helping us launch the store. And then like-minded people kind of gathered together there in Seattle. Um, and, uh, I think in general, um, that the group of athletes that we had around the Montreal brand weren't just good runners. They were true ambassadors at the risk of using a, a cliche kind of word in the marketing world. But these were people that loved what they were doing. Um, they loved the personality of the brand. And we created this camaraderie. Um, there wasn't anybody else out there marketing to the, to the world at that time. Um, so there wasn't a lot of competition. And so I was able to create this little community around Montreal um, and then around Seattle running company, um, that, uh, was really authentic. Um, and I think that's the main thing is the authenticness of, of that group of people at the time. Also, thank you to Kodiak cakes for supporting this episode. Kodiak makes my favorite pancake mix and it doesn't just taste great. It's also 100% whole grain and packed with 14 grams of protein. So you can facilitate recovery immediately post run. If you want to grab a few boxes for your post-run breakfast routine like I do, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the show. And I want to come back to the origins of sort of the, the team marketing play and trail running in a second, but I want to get a little bit of, I want to, clear, I want to get some clarity on, on the original question at the beginning of our conversation, just sort of about how 
how a race like White River 50 might achieve stability in terms of its standing in the community as like a place where all of like the elites will go and do battle and, you know, brands will show up because they're interested in seeking out who the next young gun is that's coming up on the scene. In your case, it looked like you just, you were sort of a hustler, like you were dialing for dollars, you were experimenting with all these innovative, um, uh, just like facets of, of an event to make it interesting, to make it compelling, the prize purse stuff uh, being one of them. Um, I guess what I what I really want to get to the bottom of is like, do you think that in order for a race to stay relevant for a long period of time, it comes down to the individual initiative of the race director, or is it subject to like the whims of all the forces going on in the trail running community? Um, you know, like I was saying, originally we had this this platform, you know, that I could use to really establish the event. Um, so that gave us a base to work off of. And, um, as far as sustaining it, um, it really is, I think it has a lot to do with the energy level in the enthusiasm year after year and the willing to put the work in of the race director, but also having this community around you that is, is passionate about it as me and my wife were about the event. Um, we had you know, I think we probably, you know, our aid station crews were the same for almost 20 full years, except for maybe one wow. or two changes. Um, and then to embrace the rest of the community, like um, the f- the first year of the Cascade Crest 100 miler, Randy Gerke established the event. And I was just doing an aid station um, at White River. And he asked if I would come up and do the Alali Meadows aid station up at uh, the the Cascade Crest 100 mile over the first year. And I cooked pierogies in olive oil because that's what Ben Hyen ate when I was out pacing him at Angeles Crest. And I thought, I got to do these these pierogies up there at Olali Meadows, which was no hot food. And there was only like 16 runners. And I told Randy, you know, I'll do that aid station up there, but next year I'm taking over White River 50 and you have to come do an aid station for me. And so, you know, again, this is reaching out to the surrounding community and helping each other as far as the events go. And right up until the last year I did White River, I had a trade with the organizers of Cascade Crest 100. Um, as far as I do an aid station, I'll do a Lolly Meadows. If you guys do Skookum Flats, you know, and um, so engaging the rest of the community and then helping support each other, that was a big piece of it as well. Um, but I think a lot of it had to do with really my focus on the, um, event itself and not veering from my vision of it. I mean, so many times I had people saying, oh, you got to add a half marathon. I was even getting pressure from Bill Rowe at USA track and field. We need to add a marathon onto this and you got to do a 50 K. And when the numbers were waning, for a while, like we built it up to 225 runners and it just kind of stayed there for a while. It seemed kind of stagnant. Um, but I would not, I just refused to veer from it just being a 50 mile race and really focusing on that distance in those runners and making sure that the experience of the 50 mile race continued to be really good. And, you know, in, in my opinion, hopefully a life changing experience for each runner 
rather than trying to build numbers by adding a 50K or a half marathon. And I feel that was really important that I maintained that, that focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I continued. Keep the main thing the main thing. Exactly. And then continued to maintain my, my connections in the industry and in the sport. Um, and then make sure that we're promoting the history of the event. Um, and that way, everybody who helped us out from doing the finish line timing to um, doing an aid station had that same kind of enthusiasm, focus, and, um, um, you know, spoke highly of the event from all facets of the experience. Um, the other piece was really creating a full weekend experience. And that included a pasta dinner at the Snorting Elk in a pre-race talk with film footage of the years that we actually had it air on Fox Sports Network, which was the first two years, 2000, 2001. Wow. Um, They had a show called Marathon and Beyond. And also through my connections, I had a friend who grew up ski racing with me up at Crystal Mountain who got into doing um, adventure film work. And so he could come in, interview Scott Jurek, William Emerson, Dave Terry, Nate McDowell before the race, you know, and he's all the the movers and shakers, Cammy Semek, and then he would go do, then he filmed the race. And so while they were watching the race unfold, you had this commentary from the people you were watching run, and it was actually a really good production. Um, I did not know that. That's super cool. Yeah. And so, you know, I used those tools to keep the work, get, get the word out, you know, give a visual of the course. Um, and then for the whole weekend experience, we had the pasta dinner with, you know, when we got the event up to 325 to 350 runners, um, that's registered runners. I think the biggest year we had was, um, around 400 runners, um, we would have the pasta dinner with 200 and some people all together up there. And then you'd have the race. And then we had a barbecue afterwards, which was 400 plus people because you had family and friends. And then everybody's staying up at Crystal Mountain. And we would do these informal get togethers and go up and run on the, on the Pacific Crest Trail. And um, so it became this full weekend event, um, which was a big part of the sport at the time. And it was also the allure to be in doing the marketing for Montreal with the sport. Cause I go out to Canalita Island and get on the boat with all the same people that are running, have dinner and take the boat back with all the same people that were running. And so really keeping that diligence of making it a destination event was a big piece of white river. Um, for sure. Fascinating. Um, Okay. We were talking earlier too about, you know, just what you brought to the sport in terms of this, this team marketing strategy. Uh, and I, I, if I understand correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You were the first to do this. There, there was Carl King. I think he was doing, you know, his electrolyte cap yeah. thing at around the same Carl time, but Carl was there as well. But like, you know, via Montreal, you had this, you introduced this team marketing concept, Ben Hyen, Scott Jurek, you mentioned Luann Park, what was the genesis of this strategy? Like as you're sitting there at your desk, you know, working with Montreal, thinking about, you know, how you're going to increase brand awareness, you know, get people, you know, grow affinity with the brand, all that kind of stuff. How does this pop into your mind? Well, so, um, 
what I'd done in the Northwest was basically um, it, it, probably before my generation, which was, you know, there was definitely a competitive aspect of ultra running, but it was a little bit geared more towards the road events. And, you know, Frank Bazanich and these guys were running, you know, these amazing times, but it was 50 mile road kind of thing. Right. And yes, there was some trail stuff going on. Um, but, you know, I, when I went to Chuckanut 50K the first year, Doug McKeever was putting it on. And there was about, I don't know, 18 of us all giving Doug 10 bucks to go bring soup up to the top of Cleeter Road so we could actually race, right? And we wanted to race each other, you know. And before that, it was a little bit more of a, you know, a you against the course as opposed to you against the three other guys that were there that were really running fast, Ferg Hawk, Jim Kirby, Rob Lang. And, um, and so we started to kind of get this, you know, and this was happening in all the other regions too, where there were these faster people. Um, and so I created this little bit of a team in the Northwest when it was still the one sport team. And Scott Tucker and these guys saw what we were doing and how it was actually, you know, working as this referral base into REI that had the Vitesse and their sales responding positively. And so I just took that concept and idea and took it out to the other territories that were key for ultra running. And along with myself um, in Montreal, Ultimate Direction was just coming into the market too, because Dana Miller um, who was the marketing person for Ultimate Direction, he was kind of the consummate winner at Wasatch at the time. And they came out with the first running vest. And, you know, both of us being in the industry, we got to talking at the OR, st- at the OR show. And all of a sudden, I had Ultimate Direction stuff to help support the athletes for Montreal. And then to take that a step further, Jeannie Wall saw what we were doing, who was in charge of the endurance um, clothing line for Patagonia. And she's like, we're introducing this new clothing line and I, I'd like to be a part of what you're doing. Um, and all of a sudden I had the power of Patagonia and the power of ultimate direction and Montreal, um, that tripled my offering to athletes And Montreal was very small. Like I was saying about 3.2, 3.4 million at the time. And so I didn't have much of a budget to work with. And so teaming up with these other brands um, as one entity, it allowed me to offer an athlete a little bit more than just a pair of shoes. And also we came up with an event schedule and I kind of systematically picked events based around our sales territories and reached out to the race directors. Greg Soderland was one of the first people I reached out to um, in Northern Cal because Northern Cal had this really avid community for trail running at the time. And David Horton was in the Southeast with Mountain Masochist and they had a real avid group around his stuff. And so I call up David Horton and I'm like, Hey, I'm working for this brand called Montreal. I want like to come out to your race and promote the brand, give away some shoes. And by the way, I want to bring two runners that are really fast. Would you give them some free entry into your race? Um, I'm going to bring this guy, Scott Jurek and this other guy, Kirk Apt along with me. 
Um, and then we're going to meet Ian Torrance up in Maryland and come down to your race. And um, so all of a sudden, the combination of a few good athletes in a key territory where I had a really strong rep and a lot of, a lot of outdoor stuff happening around the Appalachian Trail, we got to know David Horton. Um, and I met Courtney Campbell in, in yep. Clifton and then basically signed those guys on and um, introduced them to my rep, and then they would introduce them to some of the stores in the territory. Um, and at the time, the sport was so regional that there really wasn't much focus because none of the other brands out there had seen a benefit in, in spending money going to these races. Um, but for me, it was a good venue because um, – building relationships and generating enthusiasm is, is part of my makeup. And so I would go out to these races and Baz Halley was another one I got to know in Southern Cal. And at the time he was putting on shadow of the giants and the race out on Catalina Island. And I got to know Ben Hyen and Tommy Nielsen and Ann Langstaff and that whole San Diego crowd as well. Um, and then after two years of that, um, I was able to have a really big impact and Montreal became the brand in the ultra running community, along with Patagonia and ultimate direction. Like we were able to bring the power of the three brands. Um, and it brought a benefit to the races. It, it, it helped add to the community and the festivity of the races. So there was this value, but we had a two year jump and, uh, all of a sudden Scott Jerk and I were out at a race and, Topher Gaylord and um, Dean Carnazes started showing up at some races. And so they were the second ones to, you know, there were other brands, of course, you know, um, right. that were kind of around. But the next significant um, brand and faces in that marketing crowd were Topher and Dean. And we got to know those guys really well and became good friends with them as well. And the North Face started bringing um, some marketing into the sport as well. Um, and you know, Topher was really good at the same things I was like, he surrounded himself with right. really good athletes and good personalities. Um, and then Nike ACG came in and just started throwing money at a lot of people. And then two years pulled their whole program. <laughs> so, you know, there's, and decided it wasn't a good venue for them. And so that was the difference in, in the approach is you had myself that was really passionate about the sport and trying to support and sustain sales by getting to know people. And Topher had the same, same approach with, with the North Face programs at the time. Um, yeah. You know, we talked earlier about how, I don't know if I want to call it a standard, but you set a pretty interesting, compelling benchmark with $10,000 in prize money at White River. And in a similar way, maybe with this uh, athlete team at Montreal, you set at that time, sort of a standard about what an athlete might receive in terms of compensation. So I think a lot of it was, you know, maybe gear and travel based. Ben Hyen might have been paid a little bit. Maybe Scott Jerk got a little bit of money later on. But it seems to me, and again, I don't know all the facts, it seems to me that for the next, let's call it 15 or so years, um, there was a, a relatively small amount of money changing hands between the athletes and the brands. It sort of stayed that way. Um, What's your thesis on, on, on why that was the case, especially as, you know, the sport did go through some growth waves in those next 15 years? Yeah. And, you know, with Montreal, like I was saying, the budget was really small because it was such a small company um, at the time. And 
the enthusiasm I brought to the table um, and a lot of grassroots support for these athletes was kind of the glue and creating this community that didn't exist there before and introducing Ian Torrance to Scott Jurek and how Kerner at age 19 coming to White River and getting to stay and get to know Ian and Scott. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and for me, I was so into trail running um, and so passionate about it myself that it was infectious and we created this community around the brand, which trumped dollars in money. And it was just, you know, those guys were psyched to be making friends and having people to run with. And like they didn't want to make it their living. Um, of course, that was something that I think, you know, that people aspired to. Um, but a living for Anton Krupichka and Scott Jurek is a lot different than <laughs> than the millionaires of the world, right? Um, you know, I mean, those guys were like for Scott. I would just say, look, if you can get yourself there, I'll pick you up, and you but can Scott sleep. Talks about team. the hardships in his books, right? Like he talks about like all the credit card debt and stuff like that. Like there were some tough years for him in the mid two thousands, I think. For sure. I mean, he was working on a running shoe store, Montreal. Like Ben Hyen was, he came on as a one sport athlete. And um, a couple other people did too. But Ben was the first run, one that we reached out to, to pay a little money from a marketing perspective because he had just had this visible visible aura out there you know he had all his tattoos and he had the, yeah. the fallen mohawk and hollywood he knew you know and because he was pictured in tattoo magazine he knew ozzy osbourne invited him to a show you know and, and but ben wasn't making a lot of money either he was um the fact that he got any money at all from one sport into montreal um but a lot of it came through my support of him you know i would show up I'd go get a hotel or pay for a cabin up in Wrightwood. I was his pacer and, um, you know, for the event. So not only did I sponsor him, but I ran 50 miles of the race with him to beat the Tarahumaras and Scott Jurek in his win at Angeles Crest that year. Um, and, um, and then supported the community in San Diego. Um, and kind of, uh, and that was important was this interpersonal piece of it. Um, and with Scott, um, for instance, you know, and Hal and Chrissy, I was able to provide them with work at the running shoe store and they were more all about training together. You know, Uli Steidel, Brandon Sabrowski, Hal Kerner. And when I did leave Montreal, I convinced Ian Torrance to come and take my job at Montreal. Um, and it all centered around the store. Um, and I provided this, this venue where they could live the life of this dirtbag trail running person and still have a job, make connections out there. Um, and I helped facilitate those for Scott, for instance, you know, I facilitated this sponsorship with Montreal and at first it was just shoes and then me bringing him to races and getting him free entries, letting him sleep in my hotel room and paying for his food while he was with me, you know, so that was the extent of getting him on at first. And I would do that with these other, with some of the other runners as well. And then it morphed into the friendships and then the community at Seattle running company. And not only did I bring him into the Montreal fold, but I'm also the one that made the connection with Brooks 
that facilitated his his bigger sponsorship where he could actually make a living with the Brooks brand when he went from Montreal to Brooks. I was working with their shoe designers on the Cascadia at the time. And along with the pivot post and a rounded heel and a flared forefoot, I told him, you got to take this guy, Scott Jurek, and make him your poster child. And they did. And so I was able to facilitate through the store in my marketing background some of these relationships. I got Ian his job down there at Montreal. When he left, Chrissy was working at the store. And so she moved on to that job down at Montreal. And so, you know, we I was able to provide this platform for these guys to make some connections professionally as well. Another question I want to ask on this front is it revolves around what you believe and maybe what, what the rest of the outdoor industry believes is the ROI of sponsoring these athletes. Like when you see Scott Jurek year after year after year cross that finish line on the Placer High track, head to toe in XYZ gear, obviously it has to have some sort of influence on fans of the sport, the end consumer, et cetera. But at least to me, I'm not quite sure what how to attribute it to the bottom line. When, when you thought about making an investment in an athlete, uh, what were you betting the outcome was going to be in terms of the impact on growing the brand? So my main hope, you know, there's along with, you know, a person that could beat me in a 50K that was really, you know, well-recepted or well-received in their local community. Um, I would look for people who were also working in the industry, um, you know, working at a shop um, that could connect us to, or at least for our reps through this athlete to meet someone at a store locally. And so I would always try to to attribute it back to creating sales within a sales territory and always including the reps in on meeting these athletes and then bringing them to the events with us, making sure that my Northeast athletes were there at the, at the Vermont hundred miler and meeting Ian Torrance, you know, these types of things. And it was, you know, I was always looking for a way to tie it back to the local store, um, you know, have a movie night with the old, like I bought all the old black and white um, uh, wide world of sports uh, film films on, on Western States. And when I would go to Western States and get a cabin with 10 athletes, I went to the local store in Truckee. We had a movie night where we showed the old Western States movies and Scott Jurek was there to talk about shoes and tying it to the store and back to the community as much as I could. Um, And luckily for Montreal being small, they saw a very steep curve in their sales. Um, And it was all in this trail running category. And so they could see the return on the investment um, that uh, we were creating a personality for the brand. And we had really good personalities out there. Um, Brooks found the same thing with Scott Jurek. You know, I'm like, you get the right person here. This is a guy who's not going to just go out and race for you and demand things for you. He'll go to your accounts and do slideshows. And Scott still works with Brooks to this day. And he still goes out and does a book signing tour for Brooks at such and such a store in Washington, D.C. You know, and those were the types of relationships that that really, as a marketing person that I was looking for in the athletes, is somebody who really 
did take pride in the brands they're working with and then would want to go out and promote the brand in the sales <clears throat> channel as much as possible. Uh, trail running also was becoming, just at the time, it was becoming the poster child of the running industry. And Brandon Sabrowski was huge, and so was Ben Hyen, because Brandon had his dreadlocks down to here and his braided yeah. beard, and he's out there speaking Klingon while he's winning the Wasatch. <laughs> um, you know, he was, you, you watch all the coverage um, at UTMB, and everybody forgets that Brandon Sabrowski and he tied for first the second year. You know, he's, he's an American that did win it. Yeah. And they never talk about him anymore. You know, it was early on. He'd be a great where are they now episode. And, it's like him and like Jeff Rose. Yeah. Brandon's, uh, he, he likes to, he likes to shoot guns and do archeology. span <laughs> 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 <So>. <laughs> But yeah, he would be a good one for that for sure. But so, yeah, I mean, the tie back is really the, for one, the personality that these athletes are creating for you. You know, is it bringing people into your community that's going to help your name get out there? And then what's their investment back into it? And um, with Scott Jurek and Ben Hyen, it was really amazing how engaged those guys were. And Scott with Brooks, like he put the Cascadia on the map um, and he worked directly with their designers um, he helped them through what we had created at Seattle Running Company, a, uh, a testing lab for footwear, you know, within Brooks. Um, and he had this tie back to Seattle Running Company, which is one of Brooks' better accounts. And then he would go out and advocate for the brand at stores and do slideshows and, and things like that. So, Also, thanks to Brooks for supporting this episode. Head over to brooksrunning.com forward slash single track to check out their high point collection in new and improved Cascadia 17 shoe. I've been using Brooks products dating back to a 2014 through hike of the Appalachian trail when I used three pairs of their Cascadia eight shoe to cover the 2,190 mile trek. Again, head over to brooksrunning.com forward slash single track to check out what they got with that. Let's get back to the show. You know, you've already talked about him a lot in this episode, but I'd love to spend a bit of time on Scott Jerk. You obviously got to know him really well over the years. You were right there on the scene with him when he was, uh, you know, blowing up the sport and just, you know, having incredible success right in his prime. Uh, behind the scenes, maybe, what, what did you observe about Scott in his lifestyle, in his training, in his uh, approach to life that might not be evident to, uh, you know, listeners and viewers of this show, but um, like, what did you observe? Yeah. So, you know, I got to know Scott first, you know, when he was about 20 or so in traveling to events and his authenticity and commitment to what he chose to do were two things that really stood out. He's just this true blue, authentic person, you know, um, and very approachable at the same time. Um, and a lot of times, you know, um, someone who's competing in a sport at that level, they're, they're not that mm. approachable. Um, um, although trail running does have a tendency to attract, again, um, someone who's more into the lifestyle of it all um, than they are into the, the, the fame of it all, right? Especially early on like that. Um, Scott's interests also lied in... Um, you know, in the world of physical therapy, 
um, in training um, and figuring it all out. Um, you know, when I first met him, pepperoni pizza was his standard food. You know, I was like, oh, I just need a pizza. I just need a pizza, you know. And um, as he got more successful and more committed to um, the sport of ultra running, also along with um, being committed into the health side of things through his physical therapy and his connections there, he really started looking at training as a holistic type of a thing. It isn't just what you're doing when you're running, what your workout's going to be that day. It's how you breathe every day. Like he would talk about every time I take in a breath, I think about it and it's training for my running. You know, um, everything I put in my mouth became um, fuel for the workout in the day and then for life. And um, not only did he buy into the lifestyle of um, running trails in the mountains, but also this this health oriented track he was on, um, which then crossed over into um, into becoming a vegan and um fueling himself and uh to with everything he put in his mouth and how that would you know translate to his performance in ultra running and so you know people look at this the concept of being a vegan in ultra running scott would put like two to two and a half hours in every morning preparing his food for the day because you can't just go grab some chips or something willy-nilly and if you're a vegan and you don't put that amount of commitment into it you know, you're not going to be healthy. You know, Scott was grinding his own flour and researching how to mix carbs and where to get proteins without meat. And, um, and then how do you, what is the balance between these things and how your body absorbs it most effectively. And, you know, he would literally threw himself into the sport and it became such a holistic thing that even his posture when he was at the register, he considered that part of his training, you know, and um, it was really cool to see because it really opened everybody else's eyes around him from Hal to Chrissy to Brandon and William and um, in, in how he approached that. And if we even just took a small percentage of what he was talking about and doing, it would benefit us as well. Um, and he was so willing to share it all, um, too. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, just very committed person. Um, very focused, um, very authentic, um, and he didn't veer from his lifestyle either. Um, you know, rather than, you know, going to working for some bigger company where he can make more money, you know, he decided to write a book about what he'd done, you know, and that's a lot of work and not, a t- <laughs> you know, and a lot of effort. And um, so it was all about just everything really revolving around his lifestyle. Um, That is so cool. And, you know, you you look at the prototypical high-level Scott Jerk equivalent in our sport today, and it's sort of a given that they've adopted this quantified self-approach to training, and they're very closely examining, (coughs) excuse me, they're very closely examining the other, you know, 21 to 23 hours of the day. But, you know, 20 years ago, Scott Jerk was doing that, as as you've described. That's ahead of his time. Yeah, and... Um, you know, kind of all of us at that, you know, when they became a competitive, there became this more competitive dynamic in the sport, 
nutrition, even on the courses, you know, it, there was nothing out there in, in personally, like I can remember my second ultra going and running the, uh, McDonald forest 50 K and, you know, I knew I had to drink and drink and drink. So I'm drinking and drinking and drinking and running as fast as I can. So I can't really eat anything hardly. And just all that drink is sloshing around in my stomach. Right. And I'm like, Oh God, I'm going to throw up. And, and then I look at the table at this aid station and there's watermelon and there's salt. And, you know, this is, you know, before I'd heard of Carl King and succeed. Um, and I'm like, boy, that salt really sounds good. So I grab a piece of watermelon, scoop out all the salt, swallow it down, run out of the aid station. And about 15 minutes later, I start to feel all that sloshing actually absorb. And I'm like, so then I started looking into it and I'm like, oh, salt, sodium. And so we were going to like GNC and getting salt tablets. And then we found out about Carl Kane succeed. And, and so Scott was out there testing all this stuff too. He would, yeah, I'm going to, you know, at this aid station, hand me this uh, thing of olive oil. Cause I'm going to see what taking in good fat does to my races. And, um, I'm going to try eating a burrito, <laughs> you know? And, um, so, you know, he, he did a lot of the, the pioneering and trying out of a lot of the nutritional aspects and for ultra running for sure. When you think about the impact that, you know, the Seattle environment, the Seattle community had on Scott, how tangible was it? Like, was, was he getting pretty pushed in training and racing by, by people like Cal Kerner and, and Brandon at the time, or was he sort of a lone wolf? Like, what do you remember about that? No, I mean, that's the thing is like, it was so fun to go run with Uli and Brandon and Hal. And, um, and I was older, you know, um, I was probably more close to 40 at the time. And I never should have been training with those guys every day. I'm out there running a, this hugely fast pace for seven hours with these guys. And then I can't run for two days. Right. Cause it was just so fun. And, um, the camaraderie with Ian Torrance and, and, and Hal and Scott and, and Brandon. And then Chrissy, she actually, Chrissy walked into the store. Like I had just, my wife and I had just bought an old foot zone store and we had just opened and Scott and I are standing there. Jira, he, he didn't, wasn't quite sure where he was going to go to do PT yet. Cause he was just in this transitional phase. So I said, come move to Seattle. You, know, you can stay in my basement you know, your wife can help be a buyer at the store. Um, and, uh, so we're standing there behind the counter right after we open and this cute girl walks in and she's looking around and she goes, is John here? He was the old owner of the store. We're like, no, John's not here anymore. I said, you know, I, I took over the store. My wife and I did. And she goes, well, I'm, I'm just looking for my summer job. I just, I just graduated from the UW and I ran track and field there and, I'm like, you know, I had these ultra running guys working at the store. I'm like, we definitely needed a, a woman at the store to, along with my wife. And so I like, we hired Chrissy kind of on the spot, basically. It took us a year to get her out on the trails. And once we finally convinced her she was an ultra runner, she was all in because she was like, first time out, it was just so much fun in the camaraderie out there. And we were doing these Sunday runs that became a real thing where people would want to show up and go run with Scott and me and, and Uli. And, um, and then Chrissy just got sucked right into how much fun it was to go out and train with us all. And so it, Scott was 
really into that camaraderie aspect for day in and day out training. And Brandon and Hal and Uli were really able to push him. Um, Uli was always kind of the outsider because Uli Steidel was two, 212 marathoner, third in Germany, you know, seventh at Stanford Invitational on the track. And he was making a lot of money racing marathons. Um, but he got really into the fun of the trail runs. And so he started doing like seven hour runs and it probably didn't serve him that well trying to make, you know, the Olympic team for Germany with his marathons. Um, but again, it was just such a, a fun dynamic group to run with it. Um, it was infectious and that's why we kept having this steady stream of people coming to work at Seattle running company. Cause, um, you know, after, after kind of that group we just talked about, um, Phil Kocheck came and started working for us and William Emerson, who was the, he beat. Ian's record for the most wins in a, in a calendar year. Um, then Brian Morrison came and started working for us. And that was the next generation, Adam Lint. Like this was the generation after Scott and Brandon and yeah. in those guys. And so we were able to have this uh, kind of constant flow um, coming into the store. You know, it makes me, it makes me wonder. Cause if I, if I look back at like the last 10 years and I think about, you know, where the, the heart of the sport was in the United States, you know, for a time it was in Mill Valley, California, for a time it was in Flagstaff, for a time it was in Boulder, so on and so forth. You know, I feel like you presided over the era where the capital was in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, what do you see as the main ingredients for making that happen? Cause like, you know, I'm here in Salt Lake city and there's a part of me that's like, wouldn't it be cool just to be at the right place at the right time? And Salt Lake City sort of captures the the same, you know, lightning in a bottle that these other communities caught. Like, what were the ingredients in your case? And are they are they constant across all these different places? What do you think? Well, in Seattle, the venue for training for ultra running is like second to none outside of maybe Vancouver. Um, in Portland a little bit. And the reason is, is that you've got Mount Sinai in the winter. You can do Mount Sinai in the winter. All year, you've got huge hills all around and right out of the water. Even around Seattle Running Company, we lived, we were up on Capitol Hill and it was an 800 foot drop off the backside of Capitol Hill down into the Arboretum and back up. And uh, the Mounts to Sound Greenway um, was established to connect Snoqualmie Pass all the way into downtown Seattle um, via trail networks. And, um, there's, uh, right. You could take a bus from Capitol Hill over to, um, um, Factoria area, which is in Bellevue. And there was a trail there that went up a ravine and hooked into what's called Cougar Mountain. And at Cougar Mountain, there's 38 miles of trails. And, um, I started a, a the Cougar Mountain trail running series, which was designed, to introduce road runners to the sport of road to trail running because it was right there in the Seattle area. We did a five miler, seven and a half miler, a 10 miler and a half marathon, May, June, July, and August in one month built up all the way to the half marathon. And we did a training. And so we ended up, you know, really attracting all these 
you know, local road runners and cross country folks to come out onto the trail and help develop the sport of trail running uh, through that series that we had. But that connected to Squawk Mountain, which connected to Cougar Tiger Mountain, which then connected to Rattlesnake Ridge, and then you're in the Cascades. Um, and so you had this amazingly easy to access trail network, you know, right out the back door. And it was year round. And a lot of people pictured Seattle as this crappy place to come train because of the rain. But it's like 51 degrees and raining and you're in the woods and you're staying dry. And uh, so it was a re- it's a really good environment, still is, um, for anybody who wants to year tr- train year round um, for trail running. Um, and then you combine Montreal was there, REI was there. Seattle Running Company was there, and we had these, at the time, the movers and shakers from the competitive side of the trail running world, which are mostly Montreal athletes, working at Seattle Running Company, and we kind of became this destination stop for trail runners that came to Seattle. You know, got to go on on the Sunday Sunday trail run with Seattle Running Company because we'll get to run with Brandon or Hal or like that, and so that was another ingredient. We had this community that attracted people when they came to visit Mm. um, and it fueled it Um, for sure. You need a focal point and Seattle, Montreal and Seattle running company in that community was kind of the focal point. And I took it upon myself to support these, these runners on a very personal level. Like I truly wanted to help these guys succeed both in running and with whatever else they wanted to do. Um, and then I took on the business aspect of it, um, but it was that a true desire to build the sport. So at one point I was putting on eight events in the Seattle area. Um, and then we started doing coaching programs and trail running camps for high school kids. And uh, myself and Uli um, and Allison and Chrissy were coaches for a four-day camp for five schools in North Seattle in August for their cross country programs. And we started bringing kids into it and we started the, uh, um, the bridal trails, winter trail running festival, which we did a, a relay and I would get the high school teams to come out and try to beat Gray Crowther who was doing the 50 K solo. And, you know, these kids would be on a, um, on a relay team and they couldn't believe that Greg Crowther was beating their relay team in a 50K by himself, right? And uh, um, and then I was doing programs like for the North Face Challenge. I put on the one of the first North Face Challenge races, did a uh, training program for it. And my aid stations were high school cross-country teams who I would give an hourly towards uniforms from Brooks. And then these kids would be out there seeing it all happen and Next thing you know, you got these younger kids showing up to these events. And um, and so having those events um, also, you know, helped to grow that community outside of just the few people that were working at the store. Um, Without that, it definitely mellowed out, dissipated. People kind of went their way. Scott went to Boulder. Hal went to Ashland. Um, and Ian moved there to Ashland also. And then the, the Skaggs brothers, Eric Skaggs and, um, and, um, Jen Shelton 
They moved to Ashland because Hal was there. And Ashland became this little thing for a little while. Ashland too, yeah. And then I sold the store and moved here and then didn't tell anybody about here because I'm old now. We <laughs> well, so, well I, I do want to end on that note when we do finish up this conversation. <laughs> I want to talk about sort of the, the, Ke- the Ketchum Sun Valley area. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I, when I link together all the th- some of the things that you've done. So, you know, all the innovations with the White River 50, all the stuff with Montrail, building the, the capital in Seattle around this trail running community. It does seem like one of your your goals in this whole process, linking it all together, was to, to nationalize the sport, to make it more coherent, to evolve that competitive scene. Um, I'd love for you to talk more about the successes and the failures with those goals. Like, what about the scene when you examine it today? Are you content with and, and what do you wish for that hasn't quite developed yet that was a part of your vision? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of events now, like a lot of trail running events out there. And, um, you know, some of the the events that were the stalwarts and the foundation of our sport um, have kind of gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit. Even White River, um <clears throat> You know, James uh, um, James Varner has taken over White River, and he has a um, a marketing company um, and puts on a, a bunch of other events for range called Rain Shadow Running, um, and his events are great. But COVID, like the year that he took it over, COVID happened, and there was two years that it didn't really happen, um, and then he didn't have the same network up there at Crystal Mountain. Um, per se. Um, and you know, the aspects of the national championships and the full weekend experience, um, got lost in those two years this year, you know, I went up there and in James added a 50 K brought his pizza guys up. And now the numbers are starting to go up a little bit again, but not very many of those people that are coming knew the white river of the past. And, um, so with all the events that are out there and now a younger generation, um, some of the events like American river 50, and it used to be, um, Sunmart in, in Texas and, um, white river in mountain. Some of these, those events that were stalwarts at the time, um, there's so many other races around them that they've kind of lost their historical value in the shuffle show to speak. Um, you know, that said, Western States is more desirable than ever. Hard Rock is more desirable than ever. Um, and that comes to kind of point two of, of what I see in the current um, world that wasn't happening back then, back then that, that, that is, uh, puts me into a little bit of despair is how hard it is to get into these events. Okay. I mean, like, I put my name into Western States, not even hardly knowing about what it was other than reading about Tim Tweetmeyer and outside magazine. He's another story. Cause like with one sport, Tim Tweetmeyer was the man, right? And literally I'm dialing directory assistance to get Tim Tweetmeyer's number in Auburn. So I can talk to him about trail running shoes, um, in cold calling for athletes, I call it. Um, but, um, so you have these, more marquee events and there's the sport has grown so much in the desire to do these just few events um has made it very hard to get into them 
and in a way it's it, for myself i'm like and i'm not running events these last couple years due to to health issues with my knees and a back thing but i'm getting back into it again a bit um you know it, it's for me to make the effort to try to get into western states i'm like forget it i'm just gonna do the i am tough or um, something local here uh, where it's easier to get into and um and for sure we have to have um a way to deal with the crowds that are trying to get into these events through lotteries and qualifying races and stuff. But back then you could send Greg Soderlin a, a list of the races you've done and then you qualify for the lottery and, you know, oh, you ran White River 50 and you ran this race. Okay, you're in the lottery. You know, you hardly had to prove it. <laughs> and, um, and then your chances of getting in was like one out of three back then too. Um, and so I could pretty much plan on going to Western States and being able to run. Um, and now it's, it's, you know, there's a, a lot more that has to go into it through the qualifying races. And then it may take you, you know, four years to even get your name drawn to get into the lottery. And it used to be at the time when we were building white river, it was a come one, come all thing, you know, and it was really interesting with white river. Um, you know, we built the numbers up with the national championships and inviting runners to 225 pretty quickly. Um, but then it just stagnated there for about four or five years. And I didn't have a, uh, a number of runners in my permit. They would, you know, the race uh, or the special use director in Snoqualmie National Forest, he's known me since I was a little kid. And he's like, Scott, you know, as long as you're doing it right and you're cleaning up and you're doing everything you need, I'm not going to put any restrictions on your numbers. And so I would just say, okay, no limits. Come on, come to the race. And it was stagnating. And so all these other races had limits and they were announcing the limits. And so you better sign up quick because we're going to fill up our 200 runners. And this is as the sport was starting to grow, you know, and um, there was a lot more attention to, getting into the race because of the permits you'd have as a race director. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stop saying come one, come all. And I'm going to put a 300 person limit on it. And my numbers went from 225 to 300. Boom. Just like that. I'm like, it's kind of funny. I had to put a limit on it to get everybody to sign up. Um, but it's the evolution of the sport. And so um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not as easy to participate as it used to be um, in the primary marquee events. Um, and, you know, you got to find qualifying races and things like that to get into hard rock and UTMB. And um, so that's another thing I think has changed drastically. Um, it's just the accessibility to the, the races you want to do. You know what though? Like, and I hear a lot of people talking about how, how, like you've, you've discussed about how much harder it is to get into Western States and how much harder it is to get into hard rock and all the hoops you have to jump through to now participate over in Chamonix and the UTMB world series. Uh, to me, this is like one of the greatest gifts that these local indie races could get because it makes their marketing that much easier. And, you know, you meant you look at a race, like I'm tough, 
Uh, I think another race that is, you know, very underrated that I think should get more attention is Stanhope. Yeah. Up, up in those mountains. I think Stanhope <laughs> is a, it's a freaking it's cool race. This is the pioneer. Yeah, there's a hundred miler there now, right? There there's is a hundred miler there. Yeah. And I actually had mapped out a, I, I ran the 60 K the first two years that Ben put it on. And, um, and I had it, I had the hundred Kyle, a uh, hundred mile course mapped out of my head before he even added that <laughs> because it, it's equivalent to hard rock in beauty and in, in difficulty. Um, so I agree with you. You're right. There, there is that benefit of becoming a qualifying race and things like that for white river. We were, um, actually a point race for UTMB and for a Western States, but then they moved the distance up to hundred K minimum. And then white river lost its, it's uh, qualifying standards as a 50 yeah. mile race. Um, so in a way it was a little bit of a, um, you know, we lost that leader at white river when they bumped the distance up to hundred K because they had to further narrow down the numbers that are trying to get in, um, because they needed to streamline the races that they were using as qualifiers. And so for some races, yes, like I am tough, um, is a uh, qualifying race for UTMB now. And I bet that helped Jeremy and those guys out, um, with their numbers, but like for white river, it is no longer used as a Western States, um, or UTMB qualifying race, uh, just because the distance that 50 mile distance has become kind of a, um, a, a little bit of a lost, um, yeah. lost distance in that world. And that's why I was really excited that I was able to maintain those numbers and attraction at white river. Um, because I just stayed focused on that distance and, uh, it continued to draw the numbers, but a lot of the 50 mile races around the country have gone away. Is, is there anything else about the makeup of the sport right now that would have surprised you if we had like traveled back in time to like, let's say 20, 2002, and you were imagining what the sport could look like in 2023. Is there anything about the sport right now that surprises you that, that you couldn't have predicted? Well, one is the number of events out there just in general, I, you know, it, the, the number of events of course is indicative of the numbers of participants and the goal was to grow the sport, of course. And, um, with the idea that business at Montreal would get better and business at Seattle running company would get better. So there was, you know, there was definitely, a, um, a make a living aspect to, to, to what we were doing at the time. But I, I never imagined there would be, you know, I don't know how many on any given six races to choose from in a region on a given weekend. Exactly. And, um, (laughs) and there's definitely is a little bit more of a, there was a, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, come off as, um, you know, down talking anybody, but, um, you know, it, it, some of the races, with the whole solemn, you know, the whole team thing exploded, which surprised me too. Um, here we did this team because we didn't have a good budget to work with. And then ACG and North face and Basque. And then pretty soon Brooks had a team. And I, I, I you know, I got attributed with um, creating a team marketing concept in the world of trail running, which I don't know if I'd go that far with it, but um, definitely it was um, a concept that I came up with to create a community um, but the, 
the the team aspect really exploded out there. And I, I will say that um, that that I go to an event and there was a real fraternal aspect to the team thing and almost an exclusive kind of thing that started to happen um, that I, I, I was not excited about um, where one athlete was older and the younger athletes were excluding them. They felt left out. Just these types of dynamics that are kind of fraternal in nature um, sure. due to the team aspect of things. Um, and uh, I won't I won't talk about brands that would get too personal <laughs> where I really saw that happening. But it was a young a young group that were cool, too cool for school and um, that really you know wanted to be the center of the universe and would it, it became a little bit exclusive instead of inclusive. Um, where our approach was just so inclusive. Well, I, and maybe I don't, I don't mean, well, yeah, I don't mean for this to be a knocked on, on sort of like the inclusivity angle, but I always felt like when we saw this era, even I think it happened with Montreal, it definitely happened with Solomon where <laughs> you saw the team balloon from like 15 to like 190 yeah. athletes. And there's sort of like that watering down effect of what it means to be a pro athlete. Yes. What are your, what are your thoughts there? hundred percent. And, and that's, that's, that's part of, um, it's part of what I was talking about is this, you know, a bigger group that became exclusive as opposed to inclusive. Um, with the Montreal team, you know, my vision was to kind of build it up to about 12 men and 12 women and then start being able to provide more support for that more core group. Um, and we did tier the support so that we had a national level and a regional level. Um, and, um, but it was really the national level runners that we would use as, you know, our marketing platform as opposed to the regional athletes. Um, and after I opened Seattle Running Company and Chrissy, you know, Ian came in and he added some runners he wanted to add. And then Chrissy went down there and she added a lot more runners. And then Montreal started actually um, marketing the fact that they had 95 team members. And I, I was like, well, how, that's why you can't, respond supporting Scott enough to keep him on board because you're spread so thin that you're leaving yourself open for Brooks to come in and they only have him now and they can support him in the way that he needs to, to, to make a little bit more of a living at what he's doing this now that he's become, you know, much more um, um, visible out there in the world. And so it, it, it really made it hard for Montreal to respond to, maximizing someone like Scott Jurek because they had so many runners around them, um, on this team. And, um, and then Columbia comes in and takes it over and then they get a really bad rap because there's 95 people that, that all of a sudden aren't on a team anymore. And there was no passion in that company to really grow that trail brand. Am I, am I wrong in saying that? No, I would say you're not wrong in that. And a lot of it had to do with economy of scale, um, Scott Tucker, who is the president of Montreal and now is my boss at Vamazi, um, he also went on to run the Pearl Azumi brand after Montreal. Um, he at first went to work for Columbia to run the Montreal brand. And um, he was like, yeah, the whole Montreal volume is less than this one rubber boot that Columbia makes, you know. And Yeah, they were focused on Walmart. And Scott started, he'd say like he'd have interns putting his projects at the bottom of the pile 
and he was having trouble getting things done because again, economy of scale in this bigger company where Montreal um, in the early days, you know, Scott was a fanatic about Nordic skiing and trail running as well. And so we were real like-minded people putting passion and personality into it. And then Columbia, they, they got rid of all the climbing shoes and the hiking boots. Um, they did have a brief moment of, of resurgence of, of commitment to the sport when Topher came in and, and ran it for yeah. a little while, but then he got hired away um, to go work with Vanity Fair in a bigger role. Um, and I think he, he, I think he's still over at Under Armour now. Um, but um, so it, there was some passion that came back into it there briefly when it was um, he was running Montreal and um, what's the brand Mountain Hardware um, out of Northern Cal there for a brief moment. Um, but yeah, the passion in a bigger brand, just like when Nike came in um, when they had ACG. And they put together a team that included Nikki Kimball and William Emerson and a few others. Um, I think Dave Mackey might have been pulled into that original ACG team in about 2004, three or four. Um, and then um, it didn't pencil out. And so they dropped the team. And that has a tendency to really change the commitment from your athletes and the community around the brand. So that's kind of what happened at Columbia um, with Montreal. Yeah. Got a couple uh, miscellaneous questions here before we close up. I've really enjoyed the conversation, by the way. Um, all right. So you, to some, you know, you, you've helped build a trail brand before. Uh, you've built a brick and mortar store with Seattle Run Co. Uh, a lot of things in between and after. What has been the, let's call it the hardest business challenge to date in your career in the outdoor industry and why? Or what's been one of them that you think would be instructive to this audience who's just kind of fascinated about the behind the scenes stuff? Um, let's see. Um, well, for one, I've ended up jumping around a lot. <laughs> um, like I moved here to Sun Valley, Scott Sports decided to launch a running shoe range. And most of it came out of the, the triathlon world because they had um, their triathletes on their time trial bikes that were winning over in Hawaii Ironman. And so they started with um, more of a uh, road running um, scenario um, and they got into trail a little bit. And I was able then to take what I did at Montreal when they were small and create a team that included Joe Gray, Jody Adams-Moore, um, Sage Canady. Um, I had um, Ian, Ian um, Sharman, and we had this really killer team. Um, and it was starting to explode the brand. Like I got it up to 93 accounts. Um, and then they changed their focus, moved out of Sun Valley. Um, I lost my role there. And, you know, they were desiring to become bigger and better. Um, and then a year later decided they needed me back and I came back and the team was gone. The accounts were gone. Um, and then I tried to build it back up again. And then they decided that they wanted to put more money into bike. And so this desire of the, the professional side of our sport, not matching up with the amount of money that the suits wanted to make 
so to speak. And so that was a real challenge um, with the sport of, of trail running in particular was um, really the, the core authenticity not lining up with the money-making aspects from a professional standpoint. And um, had Scott Sports just let me do my thing and not in, out, in, out, we probably would have been successful if we would have just stuck with, towed the line and kept with it in the direction we were going. Um, but because they were faltering a little bit on the amount of money that trail running actually could bring in, <laughs> um, it uh, made it very challenging for me to keep them engaged as a brand. Um, this is also what happens with the aspect of races and events and raising prize money. You know, um, trail running, um, although it's it's grown quite a bit and it may seem like a pretty big sport when we're in it, in the grand scheme of things in the United States, um, it it is a hard industry to make money in still. Um, with Seattle Running Company, um, at that time, I would go into a lot of running shoe stores, and overall, the percentage of trail running sales was about 2%. 98% was road running shoes. The biggest competition for the trail running shoes was the road running side of it. Um, and so it was really hard to get um, stores to buy into trail running. What are those percentages at now? You said 98.2. Now it's about, about so it's 88.12. So it's come up, but that's still, um, that's it's still though. a small that's... number to work with. Though. Yeah. It still is not going to be a priority for A6 yeah. in Nike and Brooks. You know, um, although Brooks had yeah. some real success with, with Scott and the Cascadia, they put a little more into the trail running and they've hired Adam. Um, Adam Chase to, to organize a trail running team for them. They they came in at my recommendation into bringing this ambassador, Scott Jurek, along with introducing the Cascadia to the – because we were right there with Brooks. The Cascadia was sitting in the back room at Seattle Running Company trying to decide how we address um, Johnny Halberstadt at Boulder Running Company's desire for a stability shoe in – Seattle Running Company's desire for a neutral shoe. How do we address that? Me and Trip Allen, the designer at the time, came up with the pivot post and the rounded <laughs> heel and the flared forefoot. And he wanted to call it the Cascadia. And then they brought in Scott Jurek and they saw the benefit of really committing to a personality out there. And they became a part of the community because they had a guy like Scott. And now they've continued that forward with Adam Chase. Um, whereas at Scott Sports and some of these other brands, um, we were in, we were out, we were in, we were out, and they didn't stay consistent with it. Nike was in, they were out, they were in again, they were out again, and now they're kind of in again. There's, another, there's a Nike trail running team going on now again out there um, in the world. Um, so it's hard to get the, the big dollars to really – commit to the professional life of a trail runner um, yeah. and a race director too. Um, um, again, I think it was atypical at Seattle Running Company. You know, we had this big running club. We had the attention outside of the trail running community in Seattle. We had high school kids with parents and I had connections to get, you know, these people to come in and give us sponsorship for the event. Um, it's, it's hard to come by. Um, and I imagine it's maybe even harder to come by now because there are so many events out there. 
It's interesting. I mean, I think that general observation you made about the outdoor industry, it, it definitely checks with my experiences trying to carve out a niche in the podcasting space. Like you can, there's sort of like a dichotomy, like you can, you can follow your interests or you can follow what works and what works tends to be like sort of the service-based how-to type running content. Sometimes they coincide, a lot of times they don't. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just, it's a fascinating trade-off. It's, um, it's really fun working for a brand that's committed to it though. Like working for Montreal and then working with Patagonia and with, um, with Ultimate Directions, we were all very committed to the sport at the time. And there wasn't this big dollar thing hanging over us. And so we were able to be creative and create a community. And, uh, um, and the brand I'm working with now with Scott Tucker, Vamazi, you know, they're committed to bringing a new technology to the marketplace. And here we are again with no marketing dollars with me out there going, we're here, we're here, you know, and, um, but it's going to create an authentic brand and it's going to create an authentic, um, an authentic following. And we're getting accounts like Hal Kerner's store and Pocatello running company, you know, we got Rogue Valley runners. we got Phil Kocek's store um, at seven Hills run shop. And these are really core shops. And these are the same people I was working with at Montreal that I'm now coming back to and Phil Kocek and Hal both worked at Seattle running company. They both own stores. Now I had five guys that worked <laughs> at Seattle running company that opened running shoe stores over the years, Jonathan at Ohio Valley running company. They're all now Vamazi accounts too. And it feels pretty neat to be in this position and role again now where I can be authentic in core and Scott Tucker understands the process. He's not going to, pull out the rug because we didn't hit X number of sales in the first year um, of the sport. And so um, that would be a recommendation is if you want to work in this industry, find the authentic brands like Black Diamond and, um, you know, these core brands. North Face is pretty core. I mean, they've supported the ultra running community and stuck with it for a long time. Um, Even though they're a big brand out there, I have to give it to them for how consistent they've been. And, I mean, the flight series is still, I mean, it's, it's right there among the best apparel in the sports still. Yeah, the apparel's amazing. And the apparel's amazing. And Solomon kind of brought this fraternal piece to the team thing, but at the same time, they've stuck with it and they've supported events and, yeah. and whatnot. And so those brands that show good history within the sport you want to be in, you know, if I was going to get into the ski industry, I'd want to work for Black Diamond. Um, if I wanted to get into the downhill ski industry, I'd want to work for vocal, you know, or, you know, these core brands and, um, where there's consistency in history in the sport. And then you're going to find like-minded people you get to work with. Um, you're not going to get rich though. I'm not rich. (laughs) Neither am I. I, I, I have, I have no money, but I live here Um, in Sun Valley. I'm living You'd, oh, and we could talk about, well, we should talk about that in a second. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're wealthy in environment. Yes. Um, all right. La- last, uh, last question here for you before we close up. I, I did solicit one audience question for this interview and people want to hear your thoughts about the Uroy selection process and what it means to the sport. You can take this in any direction you want. What strong feelings do you have here? Why, why is the audience so curious to get your thoughts on Uroy? Um, well, I think that the amount of events that are out there again, 
um, you know, I'm passionate about White River, for instance, even though James is doing it now and stuff. And um, the last couple of years we put on White River, you know, Sage Canady got his sponsorship at Scott because his performance at White River. Justin Anton too, right? What's that? Anton as well, right? Anton, um, probably. I mean, White River was the visible event. And, um, you know, Solomon picked up Justin too there. Justin Houck. And Adam Chase was the Solomon guy at the time. And he knew White River and the history there. And um, Adam Chase was a one sport athlete, by the way. (laughs) Back, one of the first guys I signed on with Dave Mackey and, and, uh, uh, and, um, um, ah, but so Adam, you know, when he took on the, the, the Solomon team in Justin Houck only ran slower than, um, Sage Canady, who still so holds the, 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 um, course record at white river, that performance was enough for Adam to sign Justin on as a, as a, as a, uh, Solomon athlete. Um, and I felt pretty good about that and proud about that, that White River was this event you could look at. And it, if you won White River, it was a big consideration for being Ultra Runner of the Year because it was national championships. Um, so there's a lot of events out there now that would like to have that recognition and think, well, God, they won my race. They should be up for Ultra Runner of the Year, but it's a little bit more spread out and, and watered down that way. Um, Back originally when it first came out um, with Ultra Running Magazine, it was um, very statistical. And myself and John Menninger and David Horton, um, Roy Perung, um, Kevin Setness, you know, we were a lot of us in Nancy Hobbs. We were, we were involved in the organizational aspects within USA track and field. And and we were event directors and we all had a vote, you know, every year we would put our vote in, um, uh, trying to remember who I'm spacing his name that owned ultra running magazine before, um, before John manager took it over. Wouldn't have been like Carl, uh, Carl, was it? Carl was Uh, a big supporter. Um, gosh, I should know his name embarrassed that I'm not, not remembering it, but he was a very much a statistician and was very targeted in who he solicited to, and he would put the list out and we would all vote on, on who, who was going to be the ultra runner of the year. It was also a tighter, smaller number of competitive runners. And, you know, so it was no surprise who was ended up, you know, making the list and whatnot, where now there's a lot more people to vote on. There's a lot more events to take into consideration. Um, it's a lot more international in scope now too. That's another big thing. That's a change in the race, uh, in, in our sport. Um, sending, um, Scott Jurek, Ian Torrance, Dave Terry, and Brandon Sabrowski over to race the trail Walker hundred K, which was a team race over in Hong Kong was really the first foyer for Americans to go like in, in Montreal, we sent them over there. That was because I knew this Hong Kong race. And so I wanted to send a team over to beat the Gurkha warriors 
in the course record. So this, um, there was hardly internet and not a lot of international going on at the time. And now there's a lot, like you look at the, the finish, the, the results at Western States and, um, at hard rock and there's three out of top 10 or more from France and Spain. And, um, and so that changes the dynamic a little bit is this, you know, should we be considering these international races for ultra runner of the year where back then it was white river. It was AR 50. It was who made the world hundred K team who won national 24 hour champs. Yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, other standards around it. And, um, now there's just so many more people and so many more influences that it makes it a little harder to come up with an equitable list of people, um, that everybody's going to feel good about. Um, I don't know. Is that answer to the state of where we're at? I still think it's cool because it does help bring attention to these runners that have worked so hard at what they're doing in the sport. Um, but there's just a lot more people's opinions to deal with now than there was back in the late nineties and the early two thousands. Agreed. And I think, you know, part of the overarching looming problem is just like, we're still trying to solve the coherence puzzle and we're trying to figure out like, does it make sense to have a league? Does it make sense to have a series? Does it make sense to encourage all the best athletes in our sport to really focus on a set racing schedule year in and year out, as opposed to sort of dispersing at races of their choosing and where they're most motivated to be at in terms of like, you know, scenery and stuff like that. Like all those questions I feel like are, what, what do you call it? Like upstream of this problem, I think in, in the voting process. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. There's also a piece of why we wanted to integrate with USA track and field, because then, you know, if you won us national championships and you made the world hundred K team and you went over there and run, ran sub 700 K, um, I was the world hundred K coach in 2003 and I had a couple employees on the team and they're Montreal athletes on the team. And so, <clears throat> you know, I felt very much a part of the process and the ultra, you know, the Uroy person of the year. So I always felt pretty good about it because <laughs> I had a say and it was people who ran my race and were on the Montreal team and went to the world hundred Ks with me that year and, mm. and that kind of thing. And as the sport grows, there's just a lot more, um, personalities involved and, um, a lot more venues to, to work with and stuff now. So it's, but, <clears throat> well, Scott, I, I, I can't thank you enough uh, just for all the great insights and, and being so generous with your time here. I think, you know, listeners, viewers are really going to enjoy this conversation. I'm also jealous of your location. I mean, we didn't even talk about the Ketchum Sun Valley or you got, you got the sawtooths, you got the white clouds, you got the pioneers, you got the headwaters of the Salmon River. I don't mean to blow your cover, but like this could also be the next place that a lot of trail runners go and people that want to, you know, double as ski mountaineers in the winter. Um, yeah, because the training also, for the backcountry ski, ski racing is my thing <laughs> growing up, downhill ski racing. Yeah. And then I got into trail running and then combining the two was backcountry skiing. And I pull all the world there. And um, But yeah, the training venue for backcountry skiing, it's a limited window for trail running because there's, you know, it was, uh, there was ice on the steps this morning <laughs> yeah. up here at 7,000 feet. But 
and you know we'll, we'll also we'll make sure i think you know you got a cool thing going on with vamazi we'll make sure to uh link to that in the show notes as well and it sounds like you know you, you've got great momentum going on you know building accounts across the u.s just started i've got about nine of them right now but they're all like these people we've been talking about hal and phil and jonathan and you know it's these these accounts that you know Tie, tie back to the community we had back at Montreal. And um, and even the job came from Scott Tucker, who was the president of Montreal at the time, and he understood the value of what we did. And um, and so it should be fun. It'll be interesting. Before we go, do you have any, any final thoughts, words of wisdom, or uh, last topics you want to cover before we sign off? You know, I, I, I think that what's what's really cool about the sport of trail running and ultra running is even though I go to an event, nobody knows who Scott McCubrey is anymore because I'm 60. Right. And I've been hiding out in the mountains for a few years and, um, they don't, a lot of people don't recognize what white river 50 was of the past. There's still this lifestyle element in our sport and I find it everywhere I go. And it's really cool to go to Ashland and find this core group of trail runners and this camaraderie with the community built around Hal Storm, what he's done over the years. And that element, when I go out to the rut um, or to other races around the, the country, it's still there. You know, it, it's just such a cool community and people are into it for the lifestyle um, and getting out in the mountains. And so what's what's really neat about it is that this um, thing that I still want to be a part of still exists um, despite, you know, how hard it is to get into Western states and who's going to be the URA of the year. There's still this common bond, uh, this love for the mountains and the trails that, that runs through our sport that it's always going to hold it together and maintain this like-mindedness of, of the people that choose to, to engage in the sport. So I think that's just a really neat thing. Um, that's the same as it was back in the mid nineties and, um, all the way through till now. So I think it's a cool thing that, that this sport will always have that element going on with it. So it's like those, uh, those talking heads lyrics, same as it ever was. Yep, exactly. (laughs) 